All right, yeah. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Quarantine Techies podcast. And what is this podcast about? So if you're a new listener, I will just briefly explain what's going on. I'm Marcelo, and with me there's Hara, our co-host. Hello, everybody. Every week, we interview a random guest from random nationality and have a chat about the quarantine, government measures, talk about their profession and stuff. So that's basically it. One Brazilian and one Indian interviewing people around the world. Just a bunch of privileged people procrastinating and talking shy. So our guest today is Carl Fuchs. Uh, he's an accountant from Chicago, Illinois, and uh, a Python programming enthusiast. Uh, and he's getting his feet wet with some automation. So, hi, Carl. It's awesome to have you on the podcast. We're glad you accepted the invite, and feel free to introduce yourself to our listeners. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I'm an accountant. I live in Chicago. I've only been here for about six months, so I've, you know, lived all over the country, but previous to this was uh, Florida, uh, where I did audit for a big four firm, PwC. And uh, I don't know if I would say I'm a Python enthusiast. I think I'm a perpetual Python failure. That's what it feels like. <laughs> I spend 90% of my time on Google asking why it doesn't work, but I've learned a lot from that, so it's good. <laughs> It's pretty awesome. Yeah, well, I mean, like, all the first steps with, like, programming, uh, you, you go through some frustrating points and some friction, but once the thing actually runs and it gets the output that you're expecting, like, it's, it's very rewarding. And uh, encoding is just awesome, right? Like, it, just, it just makes sense. It is awesome that you've seen opportunities to automate stuff in your uh, work and all. Just one question here. So for people who do not know much about accounting, can you kind of like give us a, a little bit of walkthrough of what exactly do you do as an accountant? You know, accountant is a pretty broad term. So you can go, you know, go down so many avenues with accounting. But right now I work in um, financial due diligence. Uh, basically, if a company is looking to like buy or sell another company or a piece of a company, they would come to us and we would do kind of a review of their financials to see uh, you know, like what kind of items should be used to value the company. You know, we're not, we're not financial analysts, so we don't really look forward. You know, I'm not an investment banker. I don't do projections or anything like that. We just look at historical data and try to kind of clean it up in a way that'd be better useful, more useful uh, for like an investment banker or a company that's thinking about making a purchase. Uh, prior to this, I did audit, which uh, a lot of people think has to do with taxes, but I never really touched taxes. That's a completely different thing. So I would do like a review of financial statements for companies uh, because they, you know, pretty much every, like every public company has to have an audit and most privates usually do for something like a, uh, like if they have like a loan with a bank or something, they might require it, or a private equity investor might require it, something like that. How are the accountants uh, like coping with the with the quarantine? Can you can you talk about like you're in the U.S. right? And uh, can you talk about like your perception in terms of the the quarantine and how uh, the government is handling things and and how like the accountants are. Uh, adopting uh, a work from home paradigm and um, how does that play out in terms of like like I just mentioned right there some accounts they have to 
do some auditing. Some of them have to have to work like on site, and that might create some friction, right, in terms of uh, how they operate. I mean, how how could they take bribes, right, if they get a basket with like whiskey or lots of money or something? Like how how does that play out? Yeah, I mean, I guess the bribes you have to mail them to me now, which kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, honestly, accounting's probably one of the one of the best positions you can have in a situation like this because pretty much everything you do, you can do at home. I mean, even when I'm in the office, typically I'm just alone on a computer and people are sending me files, or I'm too lazy to walk across the office, so I'll just you know I am ping somebody on uh, Google Teams and have them like send me information because <laughs> I don't feel like getting out of my chair. So like, like nothing's really changed. I'm still just sitting in my chair at home. So that's pretty nice, just because there's an extra layer of kind of job security that a lot of people might not have. You know, I mean, if you work at a restaurant, you have to be at the restaurant. You can't be at home serving people food. So you know, there's a lot more difficulty there. So it's been pretty nice. And then as far as our perception of how the how the corona the virus has been handled. I mean, everything right now is so politicized. You'd have to ask a hundred people; you'd probably get a hundred different answers. People are pretty biased. What's your take on? What's your personal take? On? I mean, we started out a lot slower than other people. You know, a lot of countries that maybe had, uh, you know, more strict rules and social distancing from early on have seemed to handle it a lot better, and they're kind of coming out the other end, and we're still struggling along. So that was handled pretty poorly. Uh, they're starting to see a strain of, you know, anti, what we were calling, I guess what I was calling before anti-intellectualism and now it's like anti-science and people just don't want, they want to believe what they're going to believe and there's nothing you can tell them that's going to change that. And the more evidence you present, the it seems like the more they think you're like a conspiracy, which is just kind of bizarre. So we've handled it pretty poorly, but at the same time, you know, at the end of the day, social distancing, I mean, the government can tell you to social distance, but if you don't do it, you know, you can't have a cop at everybody's doorstep. So it's on us to, to handle that. So we really have nobody to blame but, but ourselves. And since you've been working from home, uh, how, how, how did your routine like change? And do you have any like sort of productivity tips or, or can you share a bit about like your, your experience with, uh, like you, you wake up, uh, some people actually get like fully dressed and then or, or they like work out in the morning uh, how, how how is your routine during the, the quarantine uh you know i definitely don't get dressed i'm usually just in like a pair of shorts sitting at the table <laughs> hopefully nobody tries to you know video conference call me but uh i don't yeah i mean my routine i sleep in a little more which is nice and I lounge around in you know crappy clothes a lot more definitely, and then I just try to struggle through being productive while both of my children chase me around the house asking for time to play. It's been pretty challenging. Um, it'll be kind of nice to go back to the office because I feel like I'll actually be able to concentrate. It's pretty challenging with small children trying to get anything done in the house. I don't really have any tips for anybody because I'm struggling through it as much as anyone. And do you have any, any any tips for like parents that are also dealing? Because that that's definitely very challenging for um, parents of uh, uh, young children. Is there is there like a, a technique that you apply, like uh, maybe arts and crafts, or just plain old like leave YouTube on for <laughs> several hours? Uh, 
Yeah, I try to break up my day into like little chunks. I mean, I think even when most people are at the office, there's a lot of inefficiency and wasted time. So I mean, what I kind of do is I'll have like a list of tasks that I really think I need to get through that day and I kind of break it up. So like I'll do one and then I'll just turn the computer on, you know, I'll lock the computer and walk away and, you know, go give some time to my kids or my wife and then go back and, and handle another thing. I don't think it's really that efficient to sit in front of the computer for eight straight hours. So you break your day up into smaller chunks. Do you, do you have a standing desk or you just kind of like walk around you know, every once in a while? You, you, you take that's, several breaks? Yeah, that's, that's funny because I actually have been like online browsing for standing desks. I've talked to my wife about it. Like, I need a standing desk. I sit too long, but I haven't pulled the trigger on one yet. Um, I definitely get more, you know, movement just because when I get up, my kids want me to chase them around. My son's pretty wild. So you know, I get some exercise picking him up, running around playing with him, which is nice. It's good to be able to spend more time at home. And I guess it's, it might not be as critical for accountants, uh, at least like myself and her are from IT. And mm -hmm. I think our the stereotype of our profession, it's way more sedentary and uh, overweight than, than accountants. Can I picture accountants with like, you know, like suit and tie and um, people that are in shape. And <laughs> There's something about like accounting and finance people. We sit around all day, but then I don't know if it's um, like ego or pride, but a lot of them do a lot of running and exercising to like make up for it because I guess they don't want to be like the overweight one in the office. So, <laughs> we, I don't know, weird. A lot of people that exercise a lot in accounting. You also must have an advantage because you have been in the Navy, right? And yeah. I guess I that brings some sort of background of exercising and I don't know, discipline. And uh, yeah, can you talk a little bit about the, the, that experience like being in the Navy? Uh, yeah, it was interesting. I think pretty much anybody that's ever been in the military says that it's uh, there's kind of two different mindsets. When you're in, you want to get out. When you're out, you're kind of proud that you were in. You know, I mean, people usually just remember the good stuff in any situation. So, uh, yeah, I spent five years in, and probably three of those years, I was just counting down the days so I could get out. And then once I got out, I kind of looked back on it like, oh, there was some like nice stuff here and there that I really like and that this. And, it definitely changed who I was as a person in a good way. I was a pretty lazy, worthless human being before I went into the Navy. And I came out definitely more, I mean, really, I don't think I ever like read a book from high school until I went to the Navy and seriously, because I just, I was at the time playing baseball in college and I just wanted to play baseball and like talk to girls and go to parties. I went to the Navy and kind of found a passion for reading that's kind of helped me out with everything I do in life now. Other than that, yeah, I mean, well, a lot of it started out with boredom. So, and, I mean, there's a lot of boredom in the military, a lot of sitting around and waiting or being on watch. And so I just started picking up books to fill the time. And that's really been beneficial to me. And and then you got like super, I don't know, cool survival skills or like, do you, do you use like every, every sort of like rifle or... It's different. Uh, there's a lot of really cool things you would never experience outside of the Navy. I did do most of the weapons qualifications. So like, you know, the, I'll just keep it like in civilian terms, but like handguns and rifles. And then like the big machine guns that you see, like Rambo. Uh, <laughs> those were pretty cool. Those were a lot of fun. I remember when, when I was in the Navy, I had a really good friend that I, I still keep in touch with. 
and we were on a team, like teams of two, on a 50 caliber machine gun that they have mounted on the side of the ships. And we were doing an operation up near Alaska with the Canadian Navy. They had these little, well, they were pretty large remote control boats. They were small for a boat, but big for something that's remote controlled, like in between, maybe like, uh, I don't know, maybe like 10 feet long. And they were just remote controlled and they were simulating a small boat attack. So for a country like, um, like Iran, they're not really going to be able to match, uh, you know, naval power with the United States. So what they do is have, uh, what they would have like a swarming small boat attack. So you'd have just dozens of little boats with explosives or machine guns or whatever they're going to put on it. And they would all attack the ship at one time in the hopes that one or two would break through and be able to do damage. So we were kind of simulating kind of a swarm attack with a small boat and we were able to fire live rounds on it. And I mean, now it's, it's pretty exhilarating. You under, I, a lot of people that never shoot guns kind of maybe look at a lot of the conservatives that love guns in like a really poor way. But if you ever get your hands on like a 50 caliber machine gun and you just feel like all the power, it's kind of addicting. It feels, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> maybe it's too much fun. Maybe that's why we need to get rid of guns in this country. But it was, a, it was a blast. It was a lot of fun. And then I did, uh, I mean, you, in the Navy, you never really have one position. So you'll hold five or six at a time. So I was, you know, a firefighter as long as, uh, along with being a sonar tech. And I did uh, what's called DBSS, Visit Board Search and Seizure, which is like a, a Navy SWAT team. So we'll, if we have like a, a ship, a boat that we're suspecting has contraband, uh, we would pull up alongside, we'd get into what's called the rib, which is a small inflatable boat. We'd ride over to the ship that we're suspecting and you throw up a, uh, a ladder, climb on board and take over the ship and then do like a search. So that was pretty cool. We were, I was able to do that in the Pacific Ocean on a, just in, just in training exercises. I never did an actual boarding, uh, but it's pretty exhilarating to be on this boat out in the middle of the ocean climbing onto another ship. It's a little scary. And, and now you've like moved from Florida to Illinois and you moved away from the coast, away from the sea. And now you have only Lake Michigan here. Do you miss the ocean? Do I miss the ocean? Um, no, not really. <laughs> it's weird as it sounds, I was never really like a beach person. Uh, it's just, it's really salty and sticky. And that's <laughs> I kind of miss being on the boat out in the middle of the ocean. Like at night, there's times where you get out there and Like, I didn't know there were that many stars. It's pretty crazy. You don't see that you know, in a city. It's pretty beautiful. It's kind of peaceful to just, like, at night when it's dark and everybody's sleeping, go out on the outside of the ship and mm -hmm. just sort of look out at the black nothingness. It's kind of relaxing. Or terrifying, I guess, depending on who you are. So, I don't know about the U.S., but in India, uh, there is a separate canteen for the military officers where you get stuff very cheap so you get very uh, high quality liquor at a very low price <laughs> so there's no customs or a lot of people not there so so do you have something like that for the american navy not that i know of i don't know i as far as like liquor and, and no have like uh no, i can't think of any kind of benefits that we had they get everything without the customs duties so Oh, so you have yeah. a friend or relative in the army, so you look forward to them coming because they can bring some stuff for you. 
Oh, nice. Yeah, we had we had a lot of stuff. Like when we went to other countries, we were able to buy things that you couldn't buy here and then mail it back. So it's kind of weird. Like like for a while, I think it's still like this. Cuban cigars, you can't buy them and import them into the United States. Mm. But if you have cigars, you can like mail them to yourself. Oh. So yeah, we went to Canada and everybody ran to the cigar shop, bought a bunch of Cuban cigars and then mailed them home. So that when we got back, they'd be there waiting for them. Is that like, no, is that, it was perfectly legal. I mean, these were like high ranking officers doing it too. So if it's on me, it's on them. Okay. I, mean, <laughs> I, I don't smoke cigars, but other And have you seen any of your colleagues like uh, getting seasick, like freaking out or just like regretting the whole thing? And oh my God, what, what am I doing here in the middle of the ocean? I want to get out of it. Yes, to all the above. A lot of people that were in and like, oh God, I never should have joined this sucks. It's like prison. And then you have people that were in and loved it and they're going to spend 20 or 30 years in, which is great. And then uh, definitely I had one co-worker. Uh, it was a great guy, but he got so sick every time we went out with the poor guy. And so he was always taking like uh, motion sickness pills, which make you sleepy. So you know, he was either working or sleeping. He would sleep like 16 hours a day because of these pills. So he wouldn't get sick. It was oh. terrible. There was one, because you sleep in a, like a, a little tiny room with bunks, like three bunk high. So you're basically just like in a coffin with a curtain on the side. It's pretty small. You're really close to a lot of people all the time. And there was a person that slept right next to me, like across the aisle, who snored so loud so loud that I had to sleep with earplugs and headphones on. I would put the earplugs in so that I could turn the headphones up loud enough to drown out the snoring without like destroying my hearing. It was uh, I ended up just sleeping on the bottom of the ship in a random compartment in a sleeping bag because I couldn't sleep in my, my bed anymore. It was terrible. <laughs> Have you met a pirate ship or real life pirates? Oh wow. Pirates? No, I I sadly I wasn't able to experience a lot of the stuff in the Navy because when I went um, and I actually got assigned to a ship, I was on a what they call a ballistic missile platform ship. Um, so we have these ships that do like intercontinental ballistic missiles or missile defense, and so the companies like Ravion or or uh, I don't know one of the other ones, they have all these new technology they give to the Navy. They sell to the Navy, and we would be the, the, the ship that tested everything and like sent back reports on maybe what was wrong or what went well, uh, so they can make adjustments. So, like, I never did a deployment, which was sad. My ship got back from a deployment when I was put on it, and then as soon as I left the Navy, they went on another deployment. So I never got to do anything, like, in real life. Everything was just training and pretend. And, so that kind of sucks. So I never got aboard a real ship or meet a real pirate or anything like that. Sad <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they would have brought in like a Navy SEAL team to deal with that anyway. So they would have just told us to shut up and stay on the bottom of the boat. Don't screw anything up. But it would have been kind of interesting. And, and those colleagues that you mentioned that were not like dealing very well with the uh, with the Navy uh, training and all. Like, did you have any sort of like a mean uh, officers that like was just like full metal jackets saying like, "Oh, you're five feet tall. I've seen pirates of shit taller than you," or whatever. Like pushing people, um, <laughs> making people like uh, swab the deck with like a toothbrush. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, no. I think 
maybe you know I went in in 2009, and maybe a lot of that stuff. You know, I mean, this is the Navy, not the Marine Corps, right? Like Full Metal Jacket, that's the Marine Corps. It's definitely a different culture. Uh, even the Army, probably a different culture. But I think they're really trying to like tone down a lot of that stuff now. Um, hmm. You know, just a lot of running, a lot of exercising, and like in boot camp is probably what you're talking about. A lot of boredom, but you know, nothing where people are really like getting after you. I mean, I got yelled at a lot. I don't know. Like it's. <laughs> It's difficult for me because like, I grew up playing baseball and I grew up with a dad who was a Navy SEAL. He did 22 years and retired. And so like some people's ideas of like getting yelled at or being mean to, like my dad wasn't mean, but like you, you play baseball and like people are yelling at each other, coaches are yelling at you. And then you go into the Navy and it just sort of seemed normal. Like nothing really stood out to me. It's like, oh, this person's being really mean, but interacting with other people that have not had those kind of life experiences, I could see that if they went in, they'd probably be like, oh my God, somebody's, you know, not being nice to me. This is so heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think yeah, I mean, the goal is to push people to the limit, right? So, and test yeah, the limit of each person. So. I think it depends. I think if you're like a really, really, like some people are good leaders for certain people and then some people are just good leaders in general. I think it's characteristic of that is being able to tell you, ta tailor your approach to each individual. I mean, some people react well to getting yelled at. You know, if somebody's really hard on you, it kind of pushes you, and then some people shut down. So if you're really hard on some people, they're just not really as positive to it. They're going to shut down, and they're probably going to get worse. And so a true leader is going to be able to tell kind of the characteristics of each individual and then tailor, you know, maybe they have to be a little easier on this person, or maybe uh, they have to be a little more encouraging to some people, and if some people don't react as well to that, you need to kind of be harder on them. So you can't really, you know, a good leader is more adaptable than anything. Is that any, like sort of friendly banter uh, between like uh, uh, Army, uh, Air Force, and the Navy? Definitely. There's definitely more of that, like depending on which branch you're in. And some of the people maybe have a little more bragging rights than others. Um, like if you're in the Navy, you're definitely gonna catch a lot of shit from a Marine. <laughs> and uh, there's definitely some of that friendly banter. And then there's also cases where I've read of like people getting into fights and like, oh. I, I read one of where like an army and a marine guy got into an argument and one of them shot the other one in a bar. I'm yeah. like, that's bizarre. It's crazy. It's just too much. But yeah, I personally would like, have some playful banter with a, another service member, but you know, and at the end of the day, you're on the same team. So. Oh, yeah. It was like, like, I mean, you like hear jokes. Like if there's any Marines that listen to this, they might get upset. But I've heard people say like, you know, the army has dogs and the Navy has Marines and stuff like that. So it, it's meant to be playful, but if somebody takes it the wrong way, they might get pissed off. <laughs> and the Navy, the Marine Corps has much worse things to say about the Navy than that. So uh, he said, because he was a Navy SEAL for a while, so they'd go into like maybe another country and there might be security that's done by the Marine Corps. And he said, "There's you probably, you probably don't get a better night's sleep than you would knowing that, you know, the border is being controlled by the Marine Corps. And if, you, you're not going to get through that line unless you kill all of them. And there's something really, you know, respectable about that kind of, you know, you never give up, never surrender kind of attitude. Uh, just go, going back to the um, accountancy, I, I think my exercise of empathy towards like the, the, the accountant and, and, and um, how they would find fulfilling, right, to, to, to be in that profession. 
I guess from some angle it would be like a, a detective, right? You kind of have to have a you go in and uh, and the company might or might not have issues, uh, and they have to go through the books, have to scrutinize uh, the records, and they, they have to find uh, problems, right? So that might have been deliberately like put in there, or like something slipped in the cracks. Yeah, it's complicated. A lot of it's complicated. There's so many standards. I mean, just like a little insight, like you would have, you mentioned GASB, so like government accounting, because you have like government and nonprofit accounting kind of have their own standards. Uh, there's like a different goal for those kind of things, right? Uh, it's not really profitability, so they have just a completely different framework. <clears throat> and then you have like US GAAP, US generally accepted accounting principles, and then you have like IFRS, which is where most, like most other countries use IFRS. I don't want to say all of them. And so there's so many different frameworks. And then even within, like, let's say US GAAP, you have um, different frameworks within that. So it can be complicated. It can be kind of difficult to, like, work your way through everything. So it's, it's a challenge. Sometimes, I mean, like, basically, you have, like, a, a course in college that just helps you transition through all the different standards because that in itself is a task. A lot of the big accounting firms have guidance that they own, like, their in-house guidance that they try to help you parse your way through like PwC had a lot of this which was very helpful but at the same time kind of made the job a little more boring like they had such sort of strict rigid standards and steps you had to go through to do everything to make sure that nothing was missed because it's so complicated that you ended up just feeling like you were working through a checklist rather than actually doing any thinking in my opinion uh, which is one of the reasons I kind of got out of like, auditing uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's complicated. And then, you know, accounting is one of those professions like uh, like being a lawyer or a doctor. It's, uh, you know, you have, I, I guess to be a CPA, not just any kind of accountant, like a certified uh, public accountant. You have, you know, all the different tests. You have to take those four CPA exams. And then you're, you have to do a year, I think it's a year of experience before you can become a CPA. <laughs> And so that's usually, if you want to be an accountant, that might be the best route to go. That, that opens a lot of doors. In IT, usually we, civilians, people outside the profession, they would approach us and would say like, hey, you work at computers, can you fix my laptop? So I guess like in, <laughs> in your case would be like, hey, can you do my taxes? Like do you see exactly like people right. asking you? People always ask me about taxes and I'm like, <laughs> I mean, I know a little bit of taxes because you cover everything in school and I do my own taxes, but it's like, I don't touch taxes. I barely ever look at taxes. But people always think like, oh, you're an accountant. And especially when I was an auditor, like, oh, I'm an auditor for BWC. Oh, so like you like look at people's taxes? I'm like, that's the IRS. That's the IRS <laughs> office. It's a completely different thing. I don't look at anybody's taxes. <laughs> yeah, so probably... Uh... We can talk a little bit more about quarantine. So, like, it's a dark cloud, right? This whole period. So, was there a silver lining to it, or is it just? Yeah. That? I think I, I I felt bad about. I, I was talking to my wife about this a little bit, and uh, I I don't want to say like this has been like a good thing, but me personally, if I just sort of block out any like other people's problems. Like, I get to spend more time at home. I get to work from home. Um, you know, I, I still have my job, so a lot of people struggle with this, I guess, but 
it's actually been kind of nice to be able to stay home and spend more time with my kids and work from the house. And I know I've had time to, I don't have to like drive to work or get dressed or, you know, or I don't drive, but take the train to work, train back. And there's just so many things in my day that I never really paid attention to that I've been saving time on. I've saved a lot of money not going out to eat. And so there's been a lot of things that I kind of, I think I want to try as as much as it probably won't work out, I try to hold on to as much as I can, like kind of some of those personal freedoms and not going out to eat as much and saving a little more money, even if it's going to have kind of a negative impact on the economy. Because I mean, at the end of the day, if people aren't spending money, the economy kind of gets a little slower. It's time for our controversial question of the day. So, Carl. All right. <laughs> oh, it's kind of like a big buzz out of this. But like, so Carl. There are a lot of big controversies around accounting firms, right? Like how, what do you think of uh, how, where accounting has come to today? How easy it is today than it was earlier to find these kind of things much early and take action. Is it, is it better in terms of technology or governance or things like that? Or do we still expect something to happen again? I always, yeah, I always expect something. I read an article recently that said, uh, like the big accounting frauds really only get found out when the economy goes down. Because, you know, as long as the economy is going up and money's getting put into those companies, they can kind of hide these things and, and push money around in a way that doesn't get caught. But as soon as the economy goes down and things get difficult, that's when all these accounting frauds get caught out. So if there's anything going on, you're probably going to catch it soon. Uh, it's definitely always going to be there. They, it's always ways for people to kind of invent new ways to skirt the system. And then, you know, like Enron and WorldCom and a lot of those, you know, those were at the turn of the century, 99, 2000, yeah. when, the, when the dot-com bubble burst and the economy got more difficult. Okay. And then, uh, you know, like Bernie Madoff probably would have kept going, except, you know, 2008, we had another financial crisis. So that's what kind of led to him getting caught. So you'll see that a lot. So it's, you know, if you're curious about financial fraud, You'll wait till the economy goes down and then start reading the news because that's when you'll start finding things out. People don't have enough money to hide their, their skin. Yeah. It'll come out soon. It always does. It always will. You're never going to get rid of it. Well, so, you know, with the U.S. being such a, a big country and, and that you are our first North American that we are interviewing, perhaps this episode warrants two controversial questions. So the second one, it's about the elections. So... It seems like Bernie was having like a good run with the Roots campaign, uh, but then Biden turned out to be the nominee. Uh, mm -hmm. So I would like to hear like your thoughts on that. How, 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 how is everything in your social circle with how polarized the world is right now, or even like your family circle? Do you have any like relatives that are on the extreme sort of spectrum or? Yeah, just, just wanted to like hear your thoughts on it. Uh, sure. Um, so I'll start at the beginning. Your your questions are really long. So I've got to go back and remember what it started with. <laughs> um, like so, yeah. I was a pretty adamant uh, uh, Sanders supporter at the from the beginning, even in back in like fifteen, sixteen, when he ran the first time. Uh, and then this election cycle, I thought I wanted to be more active, so I actually went and set up some uh, some meetings to get people together to go out and actually go door to door, not door to door. 
So yeah, I was pretty pretty big in the Sanders camp. I still think he would have been a much better candidate than Biden. Um, frustrating for me to hear people talk about, uh, like, you know, you just had the election, uh, the primary in Georgia, and people talking about how Republicans will close polling stations and will make it difficult for my minorities to vote. And then I just want to tell them, like, you know, with the Democrats in the primary, in order to stifle Sanders, did the same thing with polling stations in Latino communities. They were closing them down. They were closing them down on college campuses because Latinos and college students were the biggest like demographic for Sanders. I'm like, they did the same thing you're complaining about, but you just sort of turn a blind eye to it because you're in the establishment, and that's frustrating. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, Biden says some nice things recently, and I appreciate that. And he seems, I guess, you know, Sanders himself has said more open to progressive ideas than in the past. Uh, you know, Biden's a career politician in like the worst sense of the word. You know, he's always kind of pandering to whatever in the moment. I'll vote for him and then, you know, wish for the best. He definitely, he'll definitely be better than Trump, like a million times better than Trump. I feel like right now it's like a battle. We have a battle between like Republicans and like, unlike maybe like a, like a racial um, aspect of it. You have like a battle between Republicans who want to go back to the 50s and Democrats who want to go back to like the 90s and 2000s. Just to emphasize that the, uh, the guests' opinions thing. They don't reflect the opinions of the hosts of this podcast. We're just asking questions here, and um, and yeah, but we we do appreciate all the the opinions and information. Uh, as a citizen of uh, US, what kind of changes would you like to see in the next five years or four years? A great question. I, I think one of the the biggest benefits that would come to our country is with single payer healthcare system for a multitude of reasons, like. So the main one is that you would be able to have, you know, healthcare without having to worry about bills because that's really, you know, hurtful. You don't want to have to worry about, you know, should I get this checked out because I don't know if I can afford it. And you hear stories about people that are saying things like, uh, you know, if they get coronavirus, I don't, know if, I don't even know if I want to get tested because I want to be able to afford the treatment anyway. That's pretty shameful for a country with so much money. But also on top of that, if you wanted to look more selfishly at it, I think single-payer healthcare system would probably drive up wages a lot in this country. Um, I mean, if you go back to the origins of employer-provided healthcare, you know, they came out of World War II. So you have, you had a, like a freeze on, um, on wages during World War II because they didn't want, you know, you had a lack of, of, of a workforce and so demand was higher than supply, so wages were going up, and they thought this would negatively affect the economy and the war effort. Uh, so they said you couldn't, you know, you can't raise wages over a certain amount. And so in order to get around this, people started supplying things like healthcare. Uh, so that's kind of the, the origins of employer-supplied healthcare is giving people money without having to raise wages. So I don't see why that hasn't changed, you know, it still seems like that same thing. I mean, when I look at my pay stub every month, I notice that my employer pays three times what I do in healthcare costs. And I think I'm paying too much, so I know they're paying too much. And, you know, it's just, it, it really stagnates wages, I think, for everybody. So, senior healthcare is probably like number one on my, 
on my list, which is probably why I was a Sanders supporter and I don't really understand everybody else because he's the only one that really pushed for that and it just seems like one of the most important things. And in terms of the, how polarized things are, how, how, how are things in your social circle, family circles, the, the, like when things exponentiated recently, the blue fans or have you stopped like speaking? I don't know. Yeah. Most of my family members are pretty liberal. And, like both my parents voted for Sanders in the primary and I, my sister's voted for She's a Democrat. I don't know who she voted for, but most of my family voted for Sanders, so there's not too much controversy there. Um, I have some friends that are more conservative or Republican, but none of them are really like crazy. I don't, I don't, I don't know any anti-vaxxers or anything weird like that. Um, <laughs> I, I probably wouldn't. Like if I found out you were an anti-vaxxer or something crazy, I'd probably just stop talking. To be honest with you, it's just nuts. But I'm gonna edit. This no, one. yeah. This one. <laughs> we could edit a lot of this out. So. <laughs> <laughs> on a more on a more general sense, I, I um you know, like I said when I joined the Navy, I started getting into reading and I'm not a big like fiction reader. I like to read nonfiction. I feel like there's so much fascinating stuff going on that's true. I don't really need, you know, a story about wizards or dragons to really get me going. So uh Like, I've read a lot about history, and I don't think things are more polarized now than they've ever been. I think they're pretty standard. I think things are always like this. You can kind of just go back in history and find instances where people were pretty polarized before, you know. I mean, we had a civil, an actual civil war where hundreds of thousands of people died. And even before that, even at the beginning of the country, you know, like, uh, like John Quincy Adams, um, I'm reading a book about him recently, and, uh, you know, when he was, uh, Uh, living in Europe, uh, working for the government. They almost, like New England, almost seceded from the Union over the United States interactions with Europe back then. Uh, and we've done it so many times, you know, you read stories about politicians. Like, there was a famous one where two politicians got into an argument in the middle of, of Congress, and one of the politicians swung his cane and hit the other politician in the head with it. I mean... I feel like if you, the people that are worried about how now is a little crazier than before, probably don't know that. No, they probably don't know that much about history. You know, it's always been kind of crazy. So, Carl, uh, do you want to share anything with our listeners about any epiphanies you arrived at with this lockdown and pandemic experience? Something you learned, or yeah, I think something like this. You know, the gravity of, of people actually passing away and losing loved ones. I think it should hopefully give people new perspective on what's important. You know, like I said, uh, I've been able to spend more time with my family and it's kind of reinforced the idea that definitely a lot more important than going to work. You know, I mean, like, it, you know, money is important just because it's something that's necessary during your relationships are more important, your family's more important. At the end of the day, you're using money to buy something and perhaps maybe there's something that would be better than just buying something. Sounds good. Nice. Well, thanks, Carl, for... That makes, up, that makes up for all the controversial things I said, you know, something hopeful and light at the end. Yes. <laughs> that is the plan. Always try to uh, like end with a, with a nice tone. Yeah, right. we'll cut it down. It's like a, a four-minute interview. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we can 
we can keep like 30 minutes this around. Thank you, Carl, for joining us and talking to us. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. And for those who are listening to this episode, if you if you want to be interviewed, uh, just go to our Twitter profile, like our tweets, retweet, uh, post a reply there, and you might be the next one on our podcast. Uh, we have four followers so far, <laughs> so it's pretty pathetic. Nobody, like, it's not so buzzy, but I'm just going to... Luckily, four followers, the, you know, hashtag cancel Carl thing won't go very far, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> if you disagree with anything that Carl said today, just like raise a hashtag, cancel Carl. Um, okay. oh, Our four followers are going to get that going. So. All right. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks, guys.